Hope you keep your Bibles open there to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today I'm going to preach a message that I've never preached on before. About three months ago, I announced to the church I'm planning to retire as your pastor in December of 2024. That would be starting in my 45th year as pastor here at First Baptist Church. And so there'll be quite a, adjustments for me, but also for you. Because some of you, I'm the only pastor that you've ever known, you ever had. Those of you that grew up here, some of you have been saved in our church, and the only pastor you've ever known is Pastor Peterson. But since I announced my uh, announcement of retirement, uh, the church has established a pulpit committee, and their job is to find a replacement, someone to take my place, and they've been announcing that several weeks. They asked last week that you might uh, begin to submit people that you might think would be considered to be a pastor here. And so the uh, weeks, maybe months to come, the church, the pulpit committee, will present to you candidates for someone to take my place. I want you to know the choice of the next pastor is not mine. It's not the pulpit committee. It is yours. It's the church's decision, though the pulpit committee has a vote individually as a member. I have a vote as a member. But it's the church's responsibility. You're the one who will choose who will be the next pastor of our church. And so their job, pulpit committee, is to begin to present candidates. So today I'd like to talk about what to look for in a pastor, what to look for in the next pastor of our church. And again, this will be, uh, my desire is not to leave the church. I like to remain here as a member. I want to continue the church. I love this church. I love you. This is my home. I love Atlanta Lakes. I like to remain here as a member of the church, maybe teach a Sunday school class, but not as the pastor. So there will be some adjustments for me and also for you. But I hope you're praying for God's man. God has a man for this church. I don't know who it is. We don't know who it is. But begin to pray the right person will come to be the next pastor. So the question is, as you decide who the next pastor, what to look for? What are some qualities to look for in the next pastor? And I want to share with you what I'm going to call the essential elements of a pastor. And these are elements that I've sought to build this ministry upon. And I want to talk about the number one, more than any other element this pastor needs to have. And it's non-negotiable. It is a must. It is a fundamental. It is the gospel message. The gospel message ought to be a, a fundamental of the next pastor. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to notice, first of all, the gospel message is something we should be firm, fixed, and established. The gospel message, we should be firmed, fixed, and established. In 1 Corinthians 15, look in verse 1, please. The apostle Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the what? The gospel. Stop right there. How many of you know what the gospel is? Now, the gospel means good news, but what is the gospel? There are three key elements that make up the gospel. What are they? Many of you know exactly what they are. Some of you have no idea. <laughs> you may be saved, but do not know what the gospel is. But we're going to find out today clearly what the gospel is. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I have preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand. And verse 2, by which also ye are saved. Look up here, please. But Paul said, I want you to know what the gospel is. It's something, first of all, that I've received, excuse me, that I've preached, that you received, and wherein you stand. The word stand means fixed, made firm, established. 
That is something you and I should be fixed, established in. Something we should never compromise, something we should never uh, give into, something different. We should be fixed, established, and firm in the gospel message. The question is, what is the gospel message? I'm glad you asked. Look in verse 3. There are three key components of the gospel message. It said, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died. There's the first ingredient. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, verse 4, and that he was buried. That's the second component, buried. And that he rose again, the third component, the third day according to the scriptures. So the three key components of the gospel message, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and that he rose again. That's the gospel message. And Paul said, I preached it, you have received it, and wherein you stand, and by which you also are saved. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel message, Christian, church member, this is something you should be fixed, firm, and established. You will not change whatsoever. Something we should be as a church. I've tried to establish this church in that way. If you've been here any length of time, you've heard the gospel over and over and over again. Because I want you to know what it is and also what it is not. So it is something very important. We should be firm, fixed, and established. Next, we should never move. You should never move away from the truth of the gospel. Go with me now. Let go of Corinthians. Go to Galatians, please. Two books to your right. You have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and now the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, page 1637. Galatians chapter 1. When you find that, look up here, please. Let me give you the background of what Paul's doing here. Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul was a church planner. He had planted many churches in the area called Galatia. Galatia was not a town or city. It was an area. It was like Pasco County. There's many cities or towns in Pasco County. There's Land O'Lakes. There's uh, uh, Zephyr Hills. There's Dade City, Newport Ritchie. All these towns that make up Pasco County. Galatia was not a particular city. It was an area. So Paul had established many churches in Galatia. And now he writes them. He led people to Christ. He established a church, he had trained the people, and he moved on to do other church planning. But something happened. While he was away, people come behind him and begin to undermine the gospel. Men began to preach something that was not the gospel message. And how did the Galatians respond? Look in verse 6, please. Galatians 1, verse 6. Paul said, I marvel, I'm amazed, I'm astonished that you are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of God unto a what? Another gospel. So men came in behind Paul to undermine his work. Listen carefully, please. There'll be men coming to this church, be candidates of pastor. I hope they will have the same gospel message that I preach that you understand so well. And you'll be the choice of that man. So hopefully you'll stand firm and establish in the gospel message. And what I'm going to do is every candidate that comes, I'm going to ask them, of course, of all, to preach the word. And then at the conclusion of the message, share the plan of salvation. Give an invitation. And there you're going to find out exactly what he believes. Many have a good message about the Christian life. 
But when it comes to the gospel, there's so much mixed messages out there. And so this is a deal breaker, uh, what that man believes about the gospel, what he preaches. And Paul said he established him, and these people he led to Christ now moved away. I hope it's not, maybe three or four years down the road, I hope this church does not move away from the gospel. That's your decision. And the next pastor that comes to this church. He goes on to say, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of God unto another gospel. Verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. There's men out there called themselves preachers that are perverting the gospel, preaching a false gospel, a gospel contrary to the Bible. But he says in verse 8, notice how serious Paul is about this. In verse 8, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be what? A curse. You know what that means? That means anathema. It means damned or doomed to hell. Wow. Paul was serious about this. He said, if someone comes to you, in fact, he said, if we, he said, even if I come back and preach another gospel, let me be anathema. If an angel from heaven comes down and preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. You said, is that important? He says it the second time. Look in verse 9. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach, notice the word man is in italics. That means it's not in the original language. It's placed by the King James translators. If any preach any other gospel unto you, than that which you have received, let him be what? My friend, this is serious business. Paul said he led these people to Christ, established a church. He went to another church. And while he was away, people come behind him. In fact, there's a whole book written about this. You know what book it is? The book of Galatians. Because men came behind him and said this, what Paul told you is true. We're saved by faith. But I'm here to finish the message. We're saved by faith and kept saved by the law. And so they added the law of Moses to the gospel of grace. And basically, in Acts chapter 15 talks about it. He said, except you be circumcised, you can't be saved. So I want you as a church to realize other men are coming to preach. And we're going to find out what they preach. Now, I've given to the pulpit committee a doctrinal questionnaire that they'll send out to candidates. And that will find out what they believe about the gospel and the message. But they can answer all those right and still come in and say something is wrong. So we, they're doing their best to weed out those who preach a false gospel, but it is ultimately your decision. And he said, if we or an angel from heaven or anybody else come in and preach another gospel, let him be anathema. So it's something we should never move. And let us see, we should never accept another message. You should never accept another message. Go with me now to 2 Corinthians, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Page 1633. It's right before Galatians. You know you're close. We should never accept another message. Again, uh, my desire as pastor that the next pastor will preach the same gospel that I preach. But I realize that is not ultimately my choice. That's yours. And you will choose the next pastor. And hopefully when he gives the gospel, that will be a deal breaker for you. And he hopes he does one according to the Bible. That's what it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. 
Paul had a tremendous concern. He said, but I fear. The word fear means concern. I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Who is the serpent? Satan. In the Garden of Eden, he deceived Eve, made her, make a decision contrary to God's word. He said, I'm concerned, I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through a subtlety, read on, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The word corrupted means shrivel or wither away. I hope that you don't wither away from the true gospel message, that you don't begin to accept something that's not true. Because Satan would love nothing better as he did in the churches of Galatia. He loved to do it for Baptist church. He loved to get you to compromise the gospel. The man that comes may be a great speaker. He may be handsome and good looking. He may have a good family. Everything about him may be wonderful, but he has a false message. That's a deal breaker. And that ought to be a deal breaker to you. Something you stand firm for and not accept another. In fact, it goes on to say, look in verse 4. For if he, that man who comes, cometh, preacheth another Jesus, whom you have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which we have not received, or a what? Another gospel, which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Did you realize there's many out there preaching Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible? They preach the Holy Spirit, but not the Spirit of the Bible. And there's some preaching a gospel, but not the gospel of the Bible. So the men who come might talk all about Jesus, but he not, may not be the Jesus put forth in the Bible. He may present a spirit, but not the Holy Spirit of the Bible, and another gospel. But he goes on to say, the latter part of verse 4, ye might well bear with him. That means you might put up with and tolerate that message. My friend, I hope you will not tolerate a false gospel. You will not give ground in that. Just because he may be good in so many areas and got great plans for the church, if he has a false gospel, it ought to be a no-brainer. No. That is a fundamental essential to this church. Hope it is to you also. In fact, go with me back to Galatians. Let me show you something. Back to Galatians. Back to your right. One book, Galatians chapter 2. Again, page 1638. Here Paul talks about these false preachers. He calls them brethren, but false brethren. Galatians 2, verse five, 4. He said, and that because of false brethren, unawares brought in who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that he might bring us into bondage. A false gospel brings Christians into bondage. And those, they come in privately. They don't come in now say that I'm a false preacher. They come looking, talking, just like a man of God. And the only way you're going to know that whether he's not by what he preaches. And so it does that. But notice what he says in verse 5. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Interesting, how long is a normal church service? An hour. Paul said, I would not put up with it even for one hour. <laughs> That's what he's saying here, not for even one hour. I think there's a reason for that. So I want to encourage you as a church, be firm, fixed in the gospel message. Do not move away from it. Do not tolerate something that's false. Number two, number two. Let's talk about two essential elements to the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Christ died, was buried, 
and he rose again. The message by which we're saved. Now, let me give you two essential or key ingredients to the gospel message. Number one, letter A, is the purity of the gospel. The purity of the gospel. What I mean by that, a pure gospel is a message absent from any works, deeds, or merit of man. It's a message that's absent from any works or deeds or merit of man. The Bible says Satan has a gospel. It's a false gospel, but it's a gospel of good works. He preaches holiness, righteousness to enter heaven. And that you've got to live right, be right, do right if you want to go to heaven. He preaches works for salvation. And that's the gospel message according to Satan. But a pure gospel is absent from any work of man. The true gospel focuses on the finished work of Christ. The gospel message, listen please, takes a sinner, points to Jesus. Let me tell you what he did for you. Jesus died for you and paid for your sin and rose again. If you trust him, you go to heaven. That's what the gospel message does. But a false gospel now points at you. Here's what you must do. You must believe and be baptized. You must believe and join a church. You must believe and tithe. You must believe whatever. They add to the gospel of grace. And it becomes a false gospel. But the Bible is quite clear over and over again. Salvation is not by works. Now, you know that, don't you? Look at it with me again. Now go with me now to Romans chapter 4, please. I'm going somewhere with all this. Don't let me lose you. This is a two-part message. Romans chapter 4, page 1585. Romans chapter 4. I want you to see clearly just some of the verses that clearly says salvation is not by works. And this is something that many churches disagree. Some churches tell you it is by works. That you will go to heaven by your behavior, by the things you do. You will enter eternal life. But the Bible is quite clear, it is not by works. Romans 4, look with me in verse 4, please. Romans 4, verse 4. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of what? Look at me, please. What are you saying here? If salvation was by works, then it would be a reward given to you out of debt and not out of grace. That's what he's saying here. Many people are trying to earn salvation. If that was the case, God based salvation on works. He'd give you salvation, it would be a reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But read on, verse 5. But, notice the contrast here. But to him that worketh how much? What does that mean to work not? <laughs> Someone said, him does do a cotton-picking thing. It does not work. But, read on. It goes on to say, but believeth on him, Christ, that justifies ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, Salvation is not by works, it's by faith. It's my faith in Christ that counts for righteousness. Verse 6, even as David, the Old Testament David, who wrote the book of Psalms, also describeth the blessedness of the man on whom God imputeth righteousness, look at what it says, without what? Works. Salvation is not obtained by any human merit, any work after a man. It's a gift at the finished work of Christ. Let me give you some other verses. Look on the screen. You know these already, but just again to reiterate this truth. 2 Timothy 1.9. It said, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Ephesians 2.8.9. You know this by heart. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Titus 3.5. What's the first three words? 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because mercy is saved. It says over and again, I could show you more verses, but the Bible is quite clear. Salvation is not obtained by any work or merit of man. In fact, what's the danger of adding works to the gospel? Why is it wrong to add a little effort of man into it? Why? Go to Romans 11, please. Romans 11, page 1594. You're probably still in Romans 4, now go to Romans 11. What happens if a person adds one human merit to the gospel of grace? This ought to get your attention. Romans 11, verse 6. We already saw in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. But notice what he says here in Romans 11. He said, and if by what? Now, the word if can also be translated since. Since it's by grace, read on. Then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? <laughs> Look up here. That's what it means. It's saying, by definition, grace is the opposite of works. It cannot be both. If you look in the grace of God to save you, it's no more of works. If you look in your works to save you, then it's no more of grace. Now, how many of you like to stand before God not having grace or mercy? Trust your works to get you there. If it be of works, it's no more of grace. That's what he's saying here. So if you add one human merit to the gospel of grace, it comes a false gospel cannot save. It comes a gospel of works. Here's an example. Florida is known for its humidity. How many realize that? You go out there on July working in the yard and a humid day, and you just drenched with sweat, you're soaking wet, and you're thirsty, and your family member comes out with a big old tall of ice water. They say, this is for you to drink. I know you're thirsty. Here's for you. But they say, wait a minute now. I want you to know I put one little drop of potassium cyanide in there. <laughs> so it's 99% water, H2O, and 1% poison. Would you drink it? Now, Potassium cyanide, I understand, is one of the deadliest poison a man can drink. They said if you take a bottle of it and pull the stopper out and touch the tip of your tongue with the blood vessels close to the surface, you'll drop dead before you get back in there. That fast. And he said, I put one drop in there. Would you drink it? It's poison. You can add one effort of man to the gospel of grace. It's poison and cannot save. And I'm going to share with you some terminology that's used today that adds works to the gospel of grace adds effort to the gospel of grace. Because if it be of works, it's no more of grace. If a grace, it's no more of works. Make sense to you? Can I give you an illustration? Very simple. If it's daytime outside, it cannot be nighttime. Would you agree with that? A daytime wouldn't be daytime. If it's nighttime outside, it cannot be daytime, right? Otherwise, daytime, nighttime wouldn't be nighttime. If it's grace, it's no more of works. If it works, it's no more of grace. It cannot be both. And so that's why it's so important to preach the gospel of grace. Now, a gospel, a false gospel, is communicated through using improper and incorrect words. A false gospel is communicated through using improper and incorrect words. Go with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1602. Words are very important. And from the words, you will find out, is it a gospel of grace or gospel of works? Because remember, I'm going to share with you something I rarely do. 
If I have an outside preacher, unless I know his message, I ask him to give a message to the Christian, and guess who comes up and gives the gospel? Me. Because I want to make sure the gospel is always straight here. And so I'm going to ask the candidates, give a message to the people, and share the plan of salvation. And share the invitation. And that you can hear exactly what he believes. And hopefully you can say, amen, amen, that's right, that's true. Or there may be some spiritual antennas might go up. Something's not right here. What he's saying is not true to the Bible. And I'm going to show you how to detect that in a moment. But look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul said, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to what? Preach the death, burial, and resurrection. Notice clearly baptism is not part of the gospel. Christ didn't send me to baptize you, but to preach the gospel. They're not the same. Now, I'm not against baptism. Every believer ought to be baptized, not to be saved, but because he is saved. It's an act of obedience of a new Christian. But Paul said, Christ didn't send me to baptize you, but to preach the gospel. Read on, not with the wisdom of words. Why? Lest the cross of Christ, that's a term for the gospel, should be made of none effect. Listen carefully. What he's saying here, the very words you use could cause the very message you preach to have no effect. The very words you use when you present the plan of salvation cause that wonderful message to have no effect. Words of wisdom, talking about words that reflect man's knowledge or man's idea and not the word of God. So when a new preacher comes here, gives the gospel, listen to his words very carefully because that will reflect what is biblical or what is a man and not of God. Let me give you some terminology now. Now, please don't miss this. Let me give you some phrases, terms used today by many preachers that it creates a false gospel, not a true one. Now, listen carefully. Now, if you're visiting today and the pastor in your church you're from uses these phrases, uh, I, I don't want you to compare me with your pastor. Don't compare me with some other man. Compare me to the Bible. Compare your pastor to the Bible. Because I could be wrong, the, the other pastor would be wrong, but the Bible's never wrong. Let me give you some common terms today that are very used. In fact, maybe you use them. They're not biblical, the contrary of the Bible. Let me give you the first. Number one, the first term, false gospel, give your life to Jesus Christ. Have you heard that before? Give your life to Christ. That is so much used today. In fact, I, I've been a Baptist all my life. I'm born and raised, I'm Baptist born, Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. But being Baptist won't get you to heaven. I've been in this church since I was 14 years old, not as pastor, but I grew up here as a teenager and become pastor when I become 26 years old. But I've heard all kind of messages, even from this pulpit in the past. And so many pastors said, you don't get saved, you need to give your life. And listen, please, that's just the opposite of what the Bible says. No place in the Bible does God ask you to give something to get to heaven. Who did the giving who might be saved? For God so loved the world that he gave. Christ gave himself. Salvation is not a bargain. It's not a trade. God doesn't say, if you give me a life, I'll give you salvation. Salvation is a gift. What's the Bible say? John 1.12, but to as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So salvation is not obtained by giving, but by what? Receiving. If somebody had a gift, he said, but you've got to give to get it. It's no longer a gift. Now, listen carefully, please. Should a Christian, one who was already saved, give his life to Christ? Yes, by all means. Not to be saved because we are. 
Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, not salvation, but service. So giving our life is an act of service. But salvation is not the unbeliever giving God something, not his life, not his heart, not his pocketbook. It's him receiving what Christ has done. So when a person says you need to give your life to Christ, that is works for salvation. It's a false gospel. It's contrary to the Bible. Nobody's ever been saved by giving God anything. You're saved by receiving what he offered you. Remember the gospel? What is the gospel? Christ what? He gave his life. He died for you. He was buried and rose again. And by faith, we receive him as Savior. Let me give you another false gospel. Are you with me so far? Now, hopefully your ears will be attended. Because these pastors come in might use these terms. I don't know. The next one. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. You ever heard that before? I always ask, if you've got to commit your life to Christ, how much of your life do you have to commit? You wouldn't say half and keep the rest. Commit your life. The word commit means to pledge or to promise. Does God require the unregenerate to make a pledge to him to get saved? Does God require the unbeliever to promise God to be saved? No! I'm not saved because I promised God something. I'm saved because he made a promise to me. That's the difference. There's a person, I will not mention the name, who teaches in our Christian school. That this person was raised in a fundamental Baptist church. But the pastor, every Sunday, gave the gospel and said, the gospel is you've got to commit your life to Jesus Christ. And this individual went forward on a Sunday to commit her life to Christ and, th and thought she was saved. But as time went on, she realized I was not fully committed. Maybe I'm not saved. She went forward again. She did it several times because she could not live up to the commitment she made. And when she came to the class I shared this with, in the back, she sat there and she began to cry. And after the service, I went to this person and said, listen, did I say something to offend you? I know she'll cry and said, no. I'm happier than I've ever been. He said, I've always been told I've got to commit my life to Christ. I'm saved through a commitment I made to him. But today I realize I'm saved because of the commitment he made to me. And he keeps his promises. Now, should a Christian commit his life? Yes, all means. Can I share something with you? After 44 years, do you know who gives me more problems in our church than anybody else? It's not unbelievers. It's Christians who have not committed their life to Christ. It's Christians who have not lived like they ought to. So this term is something a Christian should do, not to be saved, because he is. I'm saved because the promise and pledge God made to me. God said, if I call upon him, he'd save me. That's his promise. But now that I am saved, I should come back to him and now give my life to him for service. Make sense? Number three, a third false term. Surrender your life to Christ. Have you heard that before? Surrender your life. Again, I told you I raised in church. I remember so often, every Sunday, the pastor would give an invitation. He asked people to come forward, and he said, you come forward to be saved as we sing, I Surrender All. How many know that song? I won't sing it for you. I don't want you to leave. <laughs> but the phrase says, I Surrender All. And so I came forward. Many times people come forward saying, I'm going to surrender the Lord. Now, the word surrender, by the way, it's nowhere found in the Bible. It's not a biblical term, at least in the King James Version. The idea is there, there but the word is not found. So in the, in the English dictionary, the word surrender means to give up to abandon, to relinquish control of. To give up, to abandon, relinquish control of. Does God require the unbeliever to give up something to be saved? Does he require the unregenerate to abandon something to relinquish control of his life to be saved? No. 
That should follow salvation, but not a prerequisite for it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus in humanity was not looking forward to the cross. And he prayed to the Father, Father, if be thy will, let this cup pass from me, the cup of judgment, the cross. Nevertheless, thy will be done. So what did he do? He surrendered himself to the will of the Father, and he went to the cross and died for me. Salvation comes not by you surrendering yourself to God, because Christ surrendered himself for you. It's what he did for me. What the, what's the gospel? He died for me, was buried, and rose again. So the word surrender, word commit, word give is a false gospel. Number three, number four, I'm sorry, number four. Now, this one is used more than anyone else among Baptists. I'm not against Baptists. I'm a Baptist. But this is a Baptist term if you ever heard one before. And they say this, you want to get saved? You need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from all your sin. They say, turn or burn, forsake or bake, try or fry. They turn, you must turn from your sin. Now, here's a question for you. I'm going to show you very clearly from the Bible. This is a works gospel. This is a works message. Let me ask you a question. What does turn from sin mean to you? What do you think turn from sin means? To most people, it means if I got something in my life, I need to stop doing it. I need to change my behavior, clean up my act. Stop doing the things. And many preachers say, this is, uh, talking about that. You need to go in this direction, you need to turn from your sin and start going in this direction. It's a change of life. How many of you get cleaned up to take a bath? Now, how many of you get cleaned up to take a bath? How, uh, basically, it's not me cleaning up my act that God saved. What, makes, what cleans me, what makes me uh, clean before God? The blood of Christ. When I trust him, the blood of Christ cleanses me all of a sudden. That's what makes me clean. Now, once you're saved, as a child of God, should you turn from your sin? Now, think about this a moment. What power or ability did God give you to overcome sin in your life? The Holy Spirit. The very power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside you. And we still struggle. It's still a battle. Even with that power. So what power or ability does the unbeliever have to turn from his sin? He has none. None whatsoever. And no wonder he can't do that. That is a false gospel. So once you're saved, yes. I like Curtis Hudson said this. You don't turn from sin to get saved. You get saved so you can turn from sin. It should follow salvation. Let me show you. Go with me now to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, chapter 3, page 1299. I'll give you about 10 minutes to find that, okay? <laughs> Jonah, in the Old Testament. Jonah. If you can't find it, it's in the table of contents. It'll help you out there if you have your own Bible. The church Bibles is 1299, Jonah chapter 3. Most of you know this story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Jonah was called the reluctant prophet. God called him to go to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh is the Assyrian capital. They were known for the wickedness, the cruelty. And God sent a prophet to them to preach that in 40 days, God's going to destroy you if you don't turn from your ways. And so he went there and he preached that. And chapter 3, verse 8, we have the king's response to his message. Response to the message that God's going to destroy you if you don't turn from your ways. In Galatians chapter, I'm sorry, Galatians, Jonah chapter 3, verse 8. The king says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, and let them turn everyone from his evil way. Let them turn from their sin and from the violence that is in their hands. Verse 9, who can tell if God 
will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not. Here's what he's saying. He heard the message of Jonah. He believed it. And he cries out to all of the city of Nineveh. He says, we need to turn from our ways. And hopefully God, who's going to bring judgment, will change his mind about judging us. And read verse 10. God saw their what? What was their works? Read on. That they had turned from the evil, they turned from their sin, and God repented, changed his mind from the evil, the judgment that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. Here the Bible clearly defined turning from sin as a work. He saw their works. What were their works? That they turned from their sin. So if I tell you you've got to turn from your sin to be saved, I'm preaching works for salvation. It's a false gospel. And yet so many preachers do it today. And uh, here's what preachers do. They change the gospel message to clean up the loose living in the pews. They see the congregation not living where they ought to, and basically to clean up their loose living, they change the gospel. They said, if you want to be saved, you need to give, you need to commit, you need to surrender, you need to turn. And these are all true of one who is saved, but not necessarily for one who is not saved. One more message, false message, and I'll wrap it up, this part of the message. One more false term, very common today, is this. You need to accept or make Jesus the Lord of your life. You need to accept or make Jesus the Lord of your life. And they'll say, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord of all, at all. He will be saying, you need to make him the Lord of your life. My friend, that's a works gospel message. It is referred to by many as the uh, Lordship Salvation. The Southern Baptist Convention adopted that back in the 1980s and their curriculum. So when they told people that salvation comes by making Jesus Lord of your life. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus has to be Lord of your life, how much of your life has to be Lord over? You want to say half and keep the rest? He has to be Lord and master over, over every area of your life. Is he Lord of every your life? Or do you still have areas you struggle with that you have not given to him the control? If that's the case, when that message, you're not saved because he's not Lord of every your life. My friend, that's the message of sanctification, not salvation. Should a Christian allow the Lord to control his life? Yes. Should I allow him to be the master of my life? Yes. You say, my friend, you say, Pastor, Jesus is Lord. Yes, he is. But as Lord, he requires only one thing to be saved. Believe on Christ. That's the message of salvation. Now, once you're saved, as a Christian, look up here, please. I've got to wrap it up here. As a child of God, out of gratefulness for what he's done for me, I should give my life to him. I should commit my life. I should surrender myself to him for service. I should, with his help, turn from my ways that are unpleasing to him and now make him Lord of my life. That's all message of the Christian life. In other words, it's so important for the preacher to make a clear distinction between the message of salvation and the message of service. Let me say that again. It's so important for the pastor to make a clear distinction between the message of salvation and the message of service. Salvation is taking the sinner, point of Christ. Let me tell you what he did for you. He died for you on the cross. He paid for your sin. He was buried and rose again. If you trust him, you go to heaven. But once you do that, now that you're saved, the finger now points at you. Here's what you should do now that you're saved. You should give your life, surrender your life, turn from your sin, and allow him to control your life. There's a big, big difference there. Let me, here's an illustration, I'll close with this. As a pastor, 
probably the most fruitful time that I see more people saved than any other time is at funerals. I've done hundreds of funerals over the years. And when I give a funeral message, you have been to them, I always give the gospel. Especially if the people there have the loved one was a Christian. I want to give them hope of seeing their loved one again. If a person who deceased was saved, he's in heaven. And let me tell you how you can be certain of heaven being your home. So I give the gospel of plan of salvation, tell them what Christ did. What I do, I said, listen to me. Let me tell you what Jesus did for you so you can go to heaven. My friend, he loved you so much he died for you. He paid for your sin, was buried, and he rose again. He offers you eternal life as a gift. Would you receive him as your savior? Now, if I'm speaking to the unsaved. Now, if I have a room full of, unbelie excuse me, of believers, those who are already saved, the message changes. They've already heard the gospel. They already trusted Christ. Now the finger does, points away from Christ now to you. Now, what are you doing as a believer for Christ? As a believer, you know what you should do? You should give your life to him and serve him. You should commit yourself and honor him. You should surrender every life Turn from your sin and allow him to control your life as a believer. That's the message of service. But the problem is, listen to me close, and I'll close with this. When there is a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. If it's not clear up there, it's going to be doubly uh, uh, unclear out there. So you want a pastor that preached the gospel clear and simple, biblical, according to the Bible. Don't compromise that. Don't give ground on that. Be established and firm and, and stand for the truth of the gospel. Of anything else that pastor may do, he'll probably come and make some changes. Nothing wrong with that, as long as they're not changing the Bible. And there's be some adjustment for you, adjustment for me, and like that. But one thing that should be is fixed, established, and never compromise, what does he preach for salvation? What does he preach that I have to do to go to heaven? Is it what Christ has done for me, or is it what Christ done for me plus what I do for him? My friend, it's not a combination. It's Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone is what saves. Close your Bibles, please. I'm preaching my heart out to you this morning because I don't want this church to change. I poured 44 years in this church, you know, the gospel message, and I want the gospel to stay the same. I hope you do too. I hope you have, you know, I hope you've adopted the heart of your pastor because, again, it won't be my choice. It'll be your choice. And hopefully you'll choose one who preaches a pure, clean gospel message according to the Bible. Let me close with this. Thank you so much. You're good listeners. I appreciate it. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to heaven? Are you certain you have eternal life? Have you ever been forgiven and received God's free gift of salvation? If you have, rejoice. And never compromise that message. If you have not, why not do it today? Before I close in prayer, before go out those back doors, you can know that you have eternal life. Not because anything that you do or promise to do, but because of what Christ has done for you. My friend, the Bible says we're all sinners. You ever seen a sinner before? Look up here. Then go look in the mirror. <laughs> for all of sin, it comes short of the glory of God. And number two, because we've sinned, there's a penalty. The wages of sin is what? Death. Because I've sinned against God, I've earned his judgment. And the judgment for my sin is death in a place called hell. Number three, we cannot save ourselves. Our works, our conduct cannot save us. And the reason works will not save you because it will not pay for sin. The payment for sin is not good works. The payment for sin is death. And no matter how good you try to be, you can never be good enough. So works cannot save you. We solve that completely. 
So we're all sinners, we're all a penalty, and we cannot save ourselves. But here's the good news. God loves you in spite of all that. He loves you as a sinner, and he loved you so much, he provided a substitute. He sent his son to this earth to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He sent his son to die on the cross. What's the penalty of sin? Death. What did Christ do on the cross? He died. Who did he die for? Sinners, you and I. He died in our place, paid for our sin, and rose again. And God the Father says this. He offers you eternal life as a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. If I believe when he died, he died for me and trust him as my savior, God said, I won't perish, I won't go to hell, but I have everlasting life. Isn't that good news? Have you ever trusted Christ your savior? If not, let's do it today. Let's bow together. As our heads bowed and eyes are closed, again this morning I've been speaking to believers, specifically to the members of First Baptist Church, encouraging you to what to look for in a pastor. Because it won't be long now, you'll be probably choosing the next man to take my place. And the number one thing to look for, more than anything else, is what he preaches as the gospel, the gospel message. And I encourage and hope that you would do that. That would be your primary thing, and more than anything else, what he preaches for salvation. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, you're not certain heaven is your home, my friend, you can be. You can leave this service today knowing that you have eternal life, knowing your sins are forgiven, heaven's your home. And it comes simply by receiving Christ as your Savior. He gave himself for you. Would you receive the death he made for you? Would you receive him as your personal Savior and trust him to take you to heaven when you die? If you will, if you do, God's promise to you is heaven. If you've never done it before, why not do it right now? Why not talk to God and get the whole issue matter settled? Talk to God and maybe say something like this. If you're not certain heaven's your home, why not talk to God and say something like this? Just say, God of heaven, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, and because I've sinned, I have earned, I deserve your punishment. But God, I believe Jesus was punished in my place. I believe when he died, he died for me. He died in my place to pay for my sin. He was buried, and I believe he rose again. And God realizing, I cannot save myself. I'm trusting Christ. I'm trusting Christ to save me and forgive me and believe in him as the one who died for me to take me to heaven. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. My friend, did that make sense to you? Did you trust Christ to be your Savior? If you did, according to the Bible, heaven is now your home. That's his promise to you, and God cannot lie. But I really get excited when someone else makes that decision. When, you, when a person decides to trust Christ, I like to pray for those who did that. I'm not going to have you fall. I'm not going to point you out. I'd like to pray for those who made that decision today. So with heads bowed and eyes are closed, no one will be put on the spot. If you pray to receive Christ as your Savior today, right where you are, would you simply raise your hand so I can pray for you? And we're all, Pastor, here's my hand. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Would you pray for me? I made that decision to trust Christ today. Would you pray for me today? Anyone at all? Father, I hope that means each one has already made that decision. They've trusted Christ, and if that's true, heaven's your home. We rejoice about that wonderful truth. Before I pray now for First Baptist Church, that we're making a decision to someone to be the next pastor of this church. There's so many qualities they can look for in a pastor. 
But the most important one is the gospel message. Help them to know what the gospel is, stand firmly on that, and never compromise it for any reason whatsoever. That ought to be the number one objective, more than anything else, of the next pastor of this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.